Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing the legacy and impact of the Odyssey. Before we get started, we have another really sweet review from Apple Podcast to share. This is from Science Baby, who says, Listening to these two lovely ladies feels like having a conversation with my best friend. They are so insightful, and both are just such sweet people. I don't have enough time to read every book that they discuss, but listening to their thoughts helps me have a better understanding of some of the classic literature that I've never gotten around to, as well as pointing me to plenty of new books to add to my list when I do get a chance to read. Thanks for all the work you do. We so appreciate you taking the time to write those kind words. Thank you. And I really feel like they apply very well to today's episode. If you are listening now and you'd like to support our show, a quick and easy and free way is to visit Apple Podcasts and submit your own review. It takes just a few minutes and helps new listeners discover our abundant backlist content. It's so nice to hear, Sarah, that we do have listeners who listen to the show, even if they haven't read the classic that we're talking about, because that's always our goal to make it accessible to everyone like that. Yes. And we've really been talking about this as we've been you know, we're consistently evolving and tweaking and thinking about what we want our show to be. And we've really been talking about how our mission when we started was to, you know, help help listeners understand what classics they might want to read and which ones they might be okay with skipping, but still give them some background on it. Our idea was never that people had to read these books or read along with us. But we really love that now we've been able to do both things and serve like both types of listeners. We always want people to be able to listen and enjoy without ever having read a book. And we love that we have our classics club over on Patreon who wants to read every single book with us. (laughs) Yes. Well, speaking of, we just spent the last two months reading The Odyssey which I was kind of surprised, Sarah, by the enthusiasm around the Odyssey. I didn't realize that this was like a big bucket list book for people or that so many people were like, I've always been meaning to read that. Were yeah. you surprised? Yes. I was shocked. I, I, was, I was shocked because I, I mean, I know there are a lot of other mythology girls out there. So I know mythology is popular. But you can really dabble in that without reading a whole epic poem. And I I also kind of thought that maybe people got enough of the Odyssey in school because it's taught, it's been taught for so long, at least the highlights that people would maybe be like, no, I've I've checked that box. But people are really excited to read it cover to cover with us. And I think this was the first time I really, truly read it cover to cover. And it was great. Yeah, same. I was thinking about like why it's such a bucket list classic. And I do think there are a lot of classics that people read in high school and then they want to revisit Mm. when they're older. 
Um, I think a lot of it just has to do with so many mythological retellings coming out now. The Odyssey just feels like, even though it's not the only story in Greek mythology, it is a big one. And uh, I don't know. I I do think part of the enthusiasm came from us specifically focusing on Emily Wilson's translation mm-hmm. because that one, first of all, it's incredible, but that specifically I think was one that people were like, oh, I, I've been meaning to see what the deal is with her translation. Yeah, because it it got a lot of attention when it came out. I I think I'm remembering correctly that she's the first woman to translate the entire mm-hmm. thing into English. And I think that there's a maybe a hope and desire there that maybe someone with her background and experience and expertise might bring something new to the poem. And I mean, we weren't reading side-by-side translations, but it still felt to me like she did bring a lot of nuance and depth to the poem and especially to the female characters and the way that Odysseus is portrayed as well. Like they're just, it was really wonderful. And, and we've talked about this with our Patreon community and in our introduction episode, it just really felt like she was translating with the reader in mind, like wanting the a modern reader to have as similar of an experience as possible to an ancient Greek person listening to this poem. And I, I think that that really came across in my reading. Definitely. And that's what we're really focusing on this episode. Today, we are focusing on what modern readers can get from the Odyssey, what we got in our rereads, and how this epic poem has influenced contemporary literature. So we're rather than doing this through our pairings, which is how we usually have this conversation, we're really just um, zooming out to the broad scope of having this literary conversation together. This is the kind of conversation that we often have over in our Patreon bonus episodes where it's just like literary chat. Yes. Yeah, we <laughs> we get sometimes a little bit more conversational over there, but also do a lot more of this like really um, homing in on this idea of how are these books alive today. So um, we, we you already asked this, Chelsea. We touched a little on why the Odyssey might be a bucket list classic. I think that like you are so right that all of the mythology retellings make make readers want to reach back to the original story because reading a a retelling can be totally fine on its own and really enjoyable. But if you can see the threads in the original and the changes that the that the modern writer is making for emphasis, you maybe get a lot more out of the book. That's true. And the Odyssey is just really, really old. Like you're not going to get an older (laughs) classic than this. (laughs) I mean, maybe a couple, but it's really, 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 really old. And so the fact that it has that staying power, I feel like contributes to this um, bucket list kind of deal. Um, I don't know. I, I think it wasn't on my radar as a bucket list classic because I was teaching it. So it just never registered that way to me. It's a very different experience. Um, 
but I hope that our readers got a lot out of it if it was on their list and they got to cross it off. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, we both kind of came into the Odyssey very familiar with the story, but both admittedly only reading it cover to cover for the first time this time. So what what did you learn or get out of your read slash reread? <laughs> I got so much more out of reading the Emily Wilson translation here. Um, the other translations that I've read are also poetic, but I just was never struck by the turns of phrase as much as I was with her translation. Um, And I think part of that is the colloquial English that she uses. And so then when she has a really stunning poetic turn of phrase, it stands out a bit more because not all of the language is super flowery or showy. Um, I I was just really struck by the poetry more than I normally am with the Odyssey. And part of that too is I'm usually focusing on teaching the more exciting episodes. And so to read it cover to cover and really take my time and slow down and focus on just the wording, I was so enjoying it as a poem, which is a very new experience for me. I agree. I She talks about in her intro how many translators, they write their English translation in a an older, more archaic feeling English because they're trying to capture the feel of something ancient in their language, right? But how the Greek that's used in the poem was just like the modern colloquial Greek that was heard and used when the poem was first being uh, proliferated. And so it actually reminds me a lot of, um, remember when we discussed the 2020 film version of Emma? And how the director talked about how in Jane Austen film adaptations, we always see everything like already looking old and crumbling because that's what we expect from a, as -hmm. a modern audience. But she wanted to show it vibrant and like lush as it was for the people living it. It It's kind of the same, same thing that these two um, artists are going for. So yeah, I agree that the language felt much more alive. And then when she really did, you know, translate a very um, lush descriptive image, it really leapt off the page. I love that comparison to Emma. I think that puts it so, so well. The other thing that I, I don't know, learned or was different in this reread for me was I didn't find any of the characters more likable. If anything, I found Odysseus and Telemachus in particular worse (laughs) than I even remembered. But they all felt more human and more real to me. Mm -hmm. And I do think part of that is reading it actually beginning to end and getting more experience with all of these characters. Um. Some of it is the lenses that Emily Wilson offered in the introduction and the translator's note. But yeah, I didn't like anybody more. I didn't think that anyone was um, any more redeemable. Uh, But I did find them all more real and grounded. Even Athena, even um, some of the gods and goddesses, um, they all felt a bit more real to me. 
Yeah, I I totally agree. And I'm not sure I could have put my finger on on that, but they did feel more real. And I think I, because, I mean, I've never taught the Odyssey, but I've taught like about archetypes and mythological archetypes. And I actually did teach Circe one year and pulled some of the Circe sections to read with my, with my students. Um, I think I've just always read the Odyssey more symbolically, which is a really enjoyable and interesting way to read it. But reading it in Wilson's translation and from start to finish, I really was more captivated by the story. It's a really good story with really good characters, complex characters, and not, I mean, they are certainly archetypes in many ways, but our our main characters do like have complicated motivations. They change and grow throughout the story. They're not just these like stagnant symbols. So I I really enjoyed seeing it for that as well and being reminded of like the joy of just reading for a good story. Walk us through reading it symbolically a little bit because as much as I think many of our listeners do enjoy reading classics for the story and this one is a fun epic story, I think a lot of our audience members would be super interested to hear what exactly you mean by reading it symbolically. What's some of the analysis behind that? Yeah. I mean, I I think that with the sort of like Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung, like archetypal stories idea, it is very available as a reading to just think about Odysseus's story as a sort of like journey through life or not necessarily a coming of age because he is older. Telemachus is the one coming of age, but a kind of finding of oneself. All of the like symbolic, maybe monsters or obstacles you might face in in your life that you have to vanquish. And not necessarily that each thing stands in one-to-one, but um, or for something consistent every single time, but that you know, the idea of like encountering um, an other in the Cyclops, right? And having to um, to bury your identity and then the, the shouting of the name at the end, like coming forth or like the Calypso part of, of just being like, you know, trapped in this uh, maybe maybe seduced into a situation that you then no longer want to be in and how to overcome that or the idea of the sirens and temptation and um, what it means to for maybe Odysseus and his, is it like a mature reaction or an immature reaction to want to hear the temptation and and brush right up against it but avoid it. There's just so much you could could explore with that. And so much has been explored and written about that. I mean, and then you have something like James Joyce's Ulysses, which like takes all of those things and then puts it into a single day of a normal man walking through um, the streets of Dublin. And I, I just, I think it's so easy to fall into just reading it like that for those archetypes, for the monster archetypes, the hero archetype, the hero journey archetype. Um, 
the goddess of wisdom archetype, like who, who are you listening to on this journey? And I, I liked getting back into like Odysseus as character. And, and I give Emily Wilson so much credit for that. Even that opening line she uses of tell me a story about a complicated man, um, really reminds you that it is like one character's story his family as well, but how he's going to change and grow throughout that rather than just him being symbolic of like the everyman. All of these different readings are why classics have staying power. When we talk about a classic as being a book that stays with us or a book that still is worth having conversations about years and decades and centuries maybe thousands of years later, that is what we mean. Not just that the themes ring true to human nature, but that there are layers upon layers upon layers in different ways that we can read the book. And we tackled several of them through our recap episodes on Patreon and our classes. And it's just been really fun to think about. But you brought up archetypes, Sarah, and I think that we should talk a little bit more about how certain archetypes from the Odyssey come into modern literature and how the Odyssey feels like it serves as a big template for some of these archetypes. Yeah, I think just structurally for me is the biggest one. Um, Both the idea of like a story within a story, which I always forget the Odyssey is. Um, I think that is archetypal, like beginning kind of in the middle of the action and then hearing the background information filled in, the rest of the story filled in. That's how that's like how stories are told now. I mean, it it's almost rarer to go just from beginning to end without those sort of flashback story within a story kind of thing in a text. Um, but then the episodic nature of the story is, I think, something that every time I see that whether it's a character on a like physical journey, like thinking about Huck Finn or um, The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls, or I just read The Guest by Emma Klein, like a character who's going from place to place encountering different obstacles or different trials, um, different situations that they have to navigate. That just feels so reminiscent of Um, and in some ways beholden to the Odyssey. Would we have gotten like another episodic journey story without the Odyssey that then would feel like the template for all of it? Probably. (laughs) But I just think that that's such a common storytelling device and I think a really attractive one to readers. Like we like to see our characters go on a journey, whether that's physical or emotional. Yeah, I think journey in general You can't read a book about a character going on an adventure without thinking about the Odyssey. But to me, a bigger portion of the book is about the return home. And I think that... Well, page count wise, yes, I think. (laughs) And I think that that's archetypal in its own way too. Um, The return piece is an important part of the hero's journey important part, but often overlooked where the hero comes home, a changed person. Um, and that return signifies 
not just the end, but the beginning of something new um, for the hero. And I was really struck because I focused so much with my students on those middle exciting episodes. I was really struck by the return home piece and how much of this poem is devoted to the theme of home and homelessness and what it means to yearn for home and yeah, returning, returning home. It's a complicated return home for Odysseus. And I, I think that, you know, how much, how much great literature and television and movies asks that question, like, can you come home again? Yeah. <laughs> and even, you know, this is a, a homecoming story, but it is, there is a question of like, what home is he finding there? And um, where we leave things off, like, it's not like everything, I mean, there's like a, a moment of peace, but there's definitely some like lack of resolution and the sense that he has something else he needs to leave for. And so, um, yeah, that can you come home again question is very much alive there. I also think Odysseus as a, a sort of archetypal character, either a complicated hero or an anti-hero, depending on how you read him. Um, I, uh, I, yeah, it's, it's funny that the anti-hero is kind of having has been having a moment. I actually read a like great piece recently about have we leaned too hard into the anti-hero and should we like try to celebrate like moral people mm. <laughs> again? Um, if I can find it again, I'll link link to it in these notes. But um, but I think we've had you know we've long had and been attracted to stories about complicated heroes, right? Um, and Odysseus is certainly one of them. I think yes and no. I think it depends on the historical context, right? So Sure, yeah, how you read them. Yeah, when we read the Odyssey and what's going on and what kind of heroes we are getting in our pop culture, I always think about Marvel and go back to that because when you're looking at the early comic book heroes, they're not complicated. And right. so they're very all hero, all moral, all just. And this was coming out of World War II where great evil was seen around the world um, on display and where you, when you are fighting a war on that scale, it is really essential for you to have an idea of yourself as the hero and not having a question about that, not having those complicated notions of, Am I actually doing what's right here? Mm -hmm. um, that got a lot more complicated in our world context, in our um, wars and um, our social context, I think, when the newer Marvel movies came out. And I don't think like the first iterations of those, I don't think that all of the heroes were as complicated as they were in maybe the last like six years or so. Mm -hmm. And there's, so there's something about like what's happening in the world that shapes our heroes. Mm -hmm. And so Odysseus lives on in time in this text, right? Like he, he's always got the same actions, 
but how we interpret him might change based on what our heroes are like. And so, yes, we are very much in the era of the anti-hero, um, even more so thanks to Taylor Swift. <laughs> so <laughs> it's there's such a focus on that. I think it is really, really easy for us to read him as an anti-hero. Um, I don't know that I would call him an anti-hero as I much as- I think he's a complicated hero. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or like a hero in story, but not in practice. And I think that Wilson tells us in her intro that that really was the Greek definition of of a hero, right? That there wasn't a moral component to being a hero at this in this thinking. It was the actions, the adventures, the conquering. And I, I think that's so fascinating what you brought up, Chelsea, about comics in the wake of World War II, because thinking about you know, Odysseus coming off of the Trojan War and just the, um, you know, the difference in in thinking about war at this time, which was really about like wealth and plundering and sacking cities. And yes, the story of Helen gives it this like moral illusion, but um, it's not necessarily what would have been front of mind for why wars were waged through these Greek city-states at this time. Yeah, war is maybe one of the themes that I didn't think about as much on this reading, even though I think that that is totally available as a focus. It's mentioned so much in this text. And I just Mm -hmm. think stories about war are so timeless and so iconic because we are always involved in some kind of war there is always a war going on in the world at some point. And so being able to read a book like this or The Iliad, which I believe Emily Wilson's translation comes out in September or October, in the fall. um, I think reading The Iliad with her translation will be that much more fascinating just in the context of world events and wars and seeing – yeah, seeing how these ancient wars were fought and how some things change and some things about the ways that men wage war are just the same. All right. Other motifs or themes from the Odyssey that you that really struck you on this reading that you see in modern literature? Um, I don't know about a connection to modern literature, but I feel like we haven't talked that much about Penelope in Emily Wilson's translation. And I found her really dull and boring. (laughs) And maybe that's because I found some of the other feminine characters like Circe and Athena so vivid and vibrant in this translation that then Penelope just felt a little bit stale to me compared to them. Yeah, well, she doesn't get to do much. And maybe that's why we in our recap episode for our patrons really like leaned into the like, does Penelope know Yeah, <laughs> this is Odysseus? Because it just gives you something more to grasp with her character. I mean, I think that she very much um, embodies one of the main archetypes we see in the like feminine heroine's journey, which is way more boring than the hero's journey 
which is waiting. Mm-hmm. Like waiting is a huge part of um, that archetypal story. So if you think about every fairy tale, there's like that period of waiting. Usually the woman is either cleaning or sleeping. Yeah, waiting and being good. For her prince, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's what what's Penelope does here. Um, she does a lot of know, sleeping. She she sure does. Athena is very kind to her with the sleep, although we learn later that her sleep is interrupted by by terrible dreams, and she says that how unlucky she is because of because of that. I think so. One of the things this I don't think this is a this isn't a theme of the Odyssey, but maybe this is something that makes it a bucket list classic or something that makes it ripe for this moment in time for reading is I think we, we readers are all very conscious and aware of whose stories get told and whose stories get prioritized and who is left out of the story and who is marginalized and whose voice gets suppressed. Those questions are, I think, really important to so many modern readers. And so taking a text like this, which is so classic, and thinking whose voice is left out here, whose story really is not told, is a really powerful way to read the text, to think about what's not on the page. Like so much of Penelope's story is not on the page. And no wonder we get so many retellings then because there's so much room for for interpretation um, and for filling in in the gaps. And I think I think that's sometimes a good reason to read classics too is not necessarily for just the story that's on the page, but for thinking about who historically and throughout literature has been left out and what stories do we want to seek to fill in those gaps. Well, I think this is a perfect transition to talking about a couple of suggestions for further reading if you enjoyed Emily Wilson's specific translation. So these are not necessarily pairings. You can go back to our first Odyssey episode to see our pairings for the Odyssey. But these are books that if you enjoyed Emily Wilson's translation for all of the reasons that we talked about today, untold stories, diving into Greek mythology, friendly, approachable renditions of these stories, we do have some suggestions. If you are in particular interested in Penelope, who we were just talking about, Claire North has a series going about Penelope specifically. And the first one is Ithaca. And then the second one is House of Odysseus. And I believe House of Odysseus is out soon. And, um, Several of our listeners have mentioned that this was on their TBR and that they're excited to read it after this journey with the Odyssey. So if you're specifically interested in Penelope, those are some recent retellings and twists on the story that you might find interesting. I'm really curious about those. You you haven't read those. Have I you? haven't. No. I really like the covers though. And um, I don't know, House of Odysseus is such a fascinating title to me. So mm-hmm. uh Maybe I'd consider picking them up on audio. As much as I love mythology retellings, I really feel like I can only do a like couple one or two year, a year, right? Yeah. Or they start to blend together, right? Or they, you know, you compare them against each other, and uh, yeah, I 
So I don't know. I'll let some more of our listeners vet that and then give it a shot. But I am very curious about Penelope after after reading this. Of course, Madeline Miller um, is a great, great read. Her book, Circe, um, which I think I mentioned this in our in a TBR toppler for our patrons. I got to see Madeline Miller speak actually at a teaching conference. And it was it was wild. She was in this like tiny room. There were like 15 people there. And it was her and like a couple other writers who modernize mythology. And it was amazing. Um, but she talked about how when she wrote Circe, she wanted Odysseus to appear in Circe for the exact same number of chapters that Circe appears in the Odyssey. And so if you haven't read Circe yet, I mean, going into it, you might think it's all about her time with Odysseus. And it's really not. Like he just, he features just as much as she features in the Odyssey, which is a very important role, but not maybe the number of pages you'd expect. So I think that's really cool. And then, um, of course, her song of Achilles is is fantastic. If that's a great book to read to learn more about the Iliad, maybe mm-hmm. going into um, Emily Wilson's translation of the Iliad, if you really like the song of Achilles. I think Madeline Miller and Emily Wilson have to be like buds, right? I know I know Madeline Miller blurbed Emily Wilson's book, but she yeah. was a Latin teacher before she wrote Circe. I would think and so. Song of Achilles. I think they've got to be. They got to. You be know friends. what? They are in our heads, and that's how it's going <laughs> to yes. stay. Yeah. <laughs> I would listen to that podcast. Oh my gosh! Please, can you imagine? <laughs> that would be awesome. Um, they would make bank. They've got to get oh, on gosh, that. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, you've been listening to some of the Stephen Fry books around Greek mythology. So give us a little uh, quick blurb on those. Yeah, there are three, and I I think maybe there are just going to be three, but it's um, Mythos, Heroes, and Troy. I listened to Troy because I wanted to get kind of the prequel to the Odyssey um, while reading the Odyssey, and I loved it. Um, He just, he's such a good storyteller, and these are really interesting books because it's not a translation of the Iliad. Um... And it's not offering commentary on the myth or like what might be real, what might not be. He's just telling the stories in really uh, compelling ways. And it's very episodic. So it's an easy one to dip in and out of. You could listen to a little bit and then put it aside for a while. But the way he told the stories of the Trojan War was fantastic. He he does give great dialogue to all of the, the characters he dives into the um, immortals and how they influenced the the Trojan War. Um, and he he does at the end offer some like historical context about like what archaeologists and historians think um, about was there a real Trojan War and why these stories, was there a real Trojan horse, all that. And so that was really interesting too. But I will definitely at some point go back and listen to Mythos and um, Heroes. I think Mythos is really more about the immortals and then Heroes, of course, is about like Jason and Hercules and all of those those heroes. Um, he narrates the audiobooks and they're amazing. He also narrated the British version of 
the Harry Potter audiobooks. I know Jim Dale, of course, beloved in the U.S., but he did the U.K. versions, at least originally. And one of his chapters was called The Boy Who Lived, which was the the first chapter of the first Harry Potter book, which I thought was was a nice nod and a reminder of like how much of the hero's journey we see in all of these beloved contemporary fantasy books too. Um, as far as a more contemporary retelling of Greek mythology, this isn't related to the Odyssey, but I know so many listeners loved Olympus, Texas by Stacey Swan. And if you haven't read it and you're just getting reacquainted with Greek mythology now and you're interested in reading more, I think that Olympus, Texas would be a really fun one to pick up, especially when we're talking about complicated characters, characters with questionable motivations, heroes, um, or characters who are based on heroes who don't always do good things. I really, really liked Olympus, Texas. And we got to talk with Stacy Swan. Was that last summer or the summer before? I think the summer before, right? I think so. Yeah. And it was just delightful to hear all of her background um, on Olympus, Texas and how she wrote the story and to hear more about Greek mythology. So I just wanted to throw that one out in case anyone missed it. It's a really, really good from summer's past title. Okay, I have one more. This was on the Fiction Matters on my paperback summer reading guide. It's The Island of Forgetting by Jasmine Seeley, which is a retelling of the Odyssey modernized from Calypso's perspective. Um, And so we have a young woman named Callie. She um, lives on a Caribbean island, and I don't want to get it wrong, so I'm going to be vague. I think it's Barbados. Um, and she works in a in a resort that her family runs. And this Odysseus figure enters enters her life. Um, and things don't go particularly well. It's a really compelling summer read. Lots of hard things happen, but like a really great summer read because of the setting and um the the greek myth illusions and then that that like kind of flipping the script maybe on an armchair travel read where you're reading the perspective of the family who runs the resort and makes sure that every visitor has the most amazing experience but what is it like to actually live and be there it's a really wonderful book i think you might like it chelsea um, it is The Island of Forgetting by Jasmine Seeley. That sounds really good. Before we share some book club announcements for August, Sarah, do you have any other books that you want to throw out since you're our resident mythology girl? Just Stone Blind by Natalie Haynes. I loved it so much. Retelling of Medusa myth. Very, um, very original. And if you just thought her previous one, A Thousand Chips, was just so-so. I also thought it was just so-so, but Stone Blind is one of my favorite books of the year so far. So I'm just going to give another push for that, and it's great on audio. That is very high praise to be a favorite mm-hmm. of the year. Mm-hmm. All right, everyone. So we are moving out of our June-July slowdown summer read and into August, which we tend to take as a little bit of a break for the podcast so that we can fill up our energy and creativity for the fall season. We're working on a really fun fall for everyone. 
But in August, we are not teaching a class, but we will have a book club and we're going to discuss Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieterer. And this book explores the question, can we love the work of controversial classic and contemporary artists, but dislike the artist? And this book is well-suited for our moment in time, for our particular audience, partly because we just read the Odyssey and talked a lot about monsters and what monsters represent. Mm-hmm. And partly because this is a conversation that we have all the time when we're reading classic literature and there are some really questionable things in the works themselves and in the lives of the authors. Yep. I am really looking forward to discussing this. I have already read Monsters, but I'm going to reread it and I know I'm going to get so much more out of it by discussing because she really does invite you to think through these questions for yourself. She's She comes up with her own personal answer, which I appreciate. She doesn't just leave you hanging, but it's not prescriptive. And so it really kind of requires readers to do their own work. And I think that our discussion is going to going to help. So if you want to join us for this discussion, you can sign up for Patreon for August. You will also be the first to know about any of the fall announcements. We we drop those in Classics Club first. So if you are already thinking like, I wonder what we're going to be reading in the fall, well, join Patreon now so you can be the first to know. And I just got to say, August, since we're not teaching a class and since we are focusing on a fairly short, I think Monsters is kind of a shorter book, right? Um, Contemporary read. It's a really good time if you either fell behind in your reading of the Odyssey or meant to join us and just couldn't. It's a good time to catch up on the Odyssey because our recaps are available to you. Our classes are available to you, our bonus episodes. And so you can still read the Odyssey and um, catch up on all of that great content with us. So if you are looking for that classic and contemporary literature analysis and friendly book chat that we feature, we have so many resources for you on Patreon, patreon.com slash novel pairings. We also share a bunch of great stuff in our free weekly newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. We have our friend Katie, who is a librarian, helping us put together these newsletters, and she finds such great educational content. And we're so grateful for her help. So however you choose to read along with us, however you choose to follow us, whether it is on Substack or Instagram or Patreon, we are so grateful. And we hope that you reach out if you have any questions about our member communities or how to get more out of your classic literature reading. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music next week. Not next week, but soon. We'll be back (laughs) with some TBR toppling episodes throughout August. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.